all these technologies made things more trustworthy, but that has shifted in the last five, 10 years in that the most prevalent technologies make things less trustworthy. The most obvious example right now is AI. Right, you wanna know why? Because they're copying people and that's what people do. It's like the ones who rise to the top are just like the best at explaining their bullshit. This week on The Active Voice, we have something a little different. It's a conversation between two writers about reasons for optimism in our culture at a time of rapid technological change. We might do more of these dialogues in the future, so please let us know your feedback and keep an eye out for another episode in the coming weeks. The writers in conversation for this week are Mike Solana, who publishes Pirate Wires on Substack, and Ted Joya, who publishes The Honest Broker. Mike is a strong voice in favor of the tech industry and scientific progress. He has a tweet that he's pinned to the top of his Twitter timeline that reads, I just want us to be fucking amazing. And that pretty much sums up his outlook. He used to be in marketing at Founders Fund and in book publishing before that. Now he covers culture and tech for Pirate Wires. Ted, he's been on this podcast before. He's one of America's great music critics and the author of 12 books. Among many other things, he started the Jazz Studies program at Stanford, and he writes about culture, music, and business for The Honest Broker. This conversation covers everything from why there's no counterculture to how writers are going to survive in the age of AI and the problems of the publishing industry. It's a great one, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Welcome to The Active Voice. Here's Mike Solana and Ted Joya. So I've got this pin tweet, I just want us to be fucking amazing. And I mean, it's kind of, it's important to me for a couple of reasons. The, maybe the more important than even the substance is that it's important to me, separate from how well it did. Now it's done quite well because every time one of my things goes viral, people will go to my page and like it or whatever. But in the beginning, it did kind of, it did pretty well. And I just loved it. I always come back to the idea that humanity, people, all of us, I mean, the goal is elevation and progress and being better to be improved, to make things better than they currently are, not even better, great. Like, what is our, why are people afraid of that? I find often you can't really say that. There's this idea that you're not, you're not supposed to expect greatness from yourself. It's seen as arrogant. From culture, it's seen as sort of not fair. You know, not everyone can be great. I don't even agree with that, one. Two, like, that should be the goal always. I don't know. And so it's my compass in a way. I mean, my, my kind of philosophical compass is probably freedom, but I just want us to be fucking amazing is my compass online. It's like the way I find myself again after a stupid fight that I shouldn't have had in the first place. Is the internet less amazing now than it was? I mean, I look around right now, and as we speak, yesterday I learned that Vice was going bankrupt. Mm. And BuzzFeed is sinking like a Titanic that just hit the iceberg. You have NPR laying off, Washington Post laying off. Literally in the last few days, both CNN and Fox both went into crisis at the same time. You think think that one would go into crisis, the other would benefit. But no, they both went into crisis. Looking at the world we live in, which is we are sort of media people, whether whether we like that label or not. Is there cause for optimism in an environment like this where everybody seems to be in collapse? I think there's a reason to be optimistic for us and maybe not for everybody else. And the reason is, so you talk about BuzzFeed and you talk about Vice and the collapse of those two 
Well, BuzzFeed's not entirely collapsed yet, right? They're retaining the goofy shit, all the dumb viral stuff. That's what's going to survive because that's what survives in a world of advertising revenue. I think you can have both, but without subscriptions. So I, I thought recently, I just wrote about this actually, uh, BuzzFeed first, and I thought Vice was coming, and now here we are. The rumors are swirling. It seems like it's about to go bankrupt. Ten years ago, everybody thought that BuzzFeed was the future of media. Everybody. And it was seen as kind of an edgy opinion, but a correct opinion. And it was edgy because BuzzFeed, it's the BuzzFeed juxtaposition of the dumb viral stuff with the serious reporting. And that was seen as, well, they understand the internet. But what they did was they, and, and they did, I think they, they did and they do understand the internet. And that's why they were so popular for so long. The problem is their model was just advertising, which was always the model for media and for newspapers. People are, thought it was strange and new because, well, newspapers, like you have to go to the store and pay a dollar or whatever for the newspaper, but that's not how newspapers made money. They made it on advertising revenue. That was the model. The difference, at the, the different thing at the time was actually, it was the New York Times. And the New York Times was like, no, we're going to pile drive into subscriptions, which everybody laughed at. They were like, this is hopelessly outdated thinking. You're a dinosaur. You are going to go extinct. And the clown, BuzzFeed, is going to be the king. And how embarrassing is that going to be for you? And now 10 years later, the New York Times is more dominant than ever before. It is, I think it is way more actually culturally relevant now than it was a decade ago. It feels unstoppable. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that that subscription model, it's not just the money that forced them to be distinct, like, or maybe allowed them to be distinct. When you're on advertising dollars, you're competing with everybody else on advertising dollars on these same platforms where the algorithm drives you to the same things that become popular. That's how you get the advertising revenue is by flattening out your identity. And that's what happened to all the new media companies except the people on subs. And now here we are, much smaller versions, obviously, than the New York Times for now. But I think that I think that there's something in the actual model and, and the email list, which the New York Times also has this massive email list for their daily, right? Like, I think there's something in, in that capture where, where you're like sort of off in your own little corner. And the only way you get that is if you're, you're, if, if you're different, if you sound different. That became this really important, I think, valuable asset in, in this age of the kind of like advertiser, advertising flattening, right? And, I th- and we, we have that. That's, that's what we have. That's, we're sort of in the, the age of identity now. And if you don't have that, if you sound like everybody else, there's no way to survive. You know, my view is divided between this pessimism, optimism thing. But the way I like to look at it is that there's been a crisis of trust, an enormous crisis of trust, and that certain voices are emerging and succeeding because they've been able to parlay that trust. It's this honest broker story I'm, I'm, I'm giving again. You know, I'm, and I, and I look at um, all these models that went by the wayside over the last 10, 15 years, and I'll just give some examples. I mean, for example, um, 10 years ago, a company called Upworthy was proclaimed the fastest growing media site in history. Right. And they did these focus groups for every headline. And the headline was always in two parts. Something like, this woman killed her husband and ate him for dinner. But wait till you see the reason why. And the idea... By the way, I'm leaning in. I do want to know why. (laughs) I want to know. 
And for six, 12 months, just everybody was clicking on these things. And after a while, just people are saying, I'm not that stupid. I'm sorry. And and this thing just took off. And then it still exists, but it's laid off and it never realized its potential. But for a, a point in time, it was the fastest growing media strategy. And we were all supposed to imitate it. And then you had BuzzFeed come out with, don't write articles. People want lists. You know, this is the 10 reasons why she ate her husband. And these are the 10 condiments <laughs> that she put on it before putting him on the dinner table. And that took off. But I, I think that's dying on the vine now. And then there was the pivot to video. This problem advice I find amusing because this was supposed to be edgy and counterculture, but it's two big shareholders were Fox and Disney. So how, ed- <laughs> how edgy are you going to get? And I read somebody yesterday who was saying, I left Vice because I wanted to do things that were more daring, so I went to NPR. Oh, my <laughs> I mean, God. Well, you know, how, no. how sad does that happen? Vice to- <laughs> was, I mean, poor went out for Vice. They were awesome. Absolutely. In the early days, they're an ins- genuinely an inspiration to me. And I think it's sad what happened to them in this in this sort of media hellscape. On your thing, so The Honest Broker, we're ta- you were talking about sort of trust and the need for that. And I think that's one of the things that you offer, I think there's so much information out there that unless you're living inside of it, you need someone who you trust to tell you what's going on. And I think, and I'm not saying that we're trustworthy, <laughs> but I'm saying that that's just the human condition, I think, is we look for people who we trust to sort this out. It's certainly what you do. And you've written a couple of pieces that I think, I mean, I, I feel, they feel like, like there are themes that I've touched on, like, wow, we were like very keyed into the same thing here. One about the sort of endlessly scrolling papyrus, and then one about there's too much music, basically. Like when you have so much music, when you have a couple pieces of music, it's really valuable. But when you have so much music, um, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of songs, it becomes valueless in a way and too hard to to decipher. I think about that in terms of like stories, daily stories and dramas and political things and tweets and everything. I think the dream of the internet, the utopian kind of fantasy of it was like, wow, we have all the world's information at our fingertips. But once we had it, that was actually terrifying. There was way too much information. But then here you are. So you're stepping in. I'm stepping in. We live inside of that. I certainly don't want to speak for you. I love it. And maybe that's the place that we that that's like this new important kind of role that we're we're filling and people like us other writers are filling the way i look at it is that for decades for centuries in fact new technologies empowered you and made things more reliable so when they invented photographs you could look at a photograph and seeing was believing so this is what abraham lincoln looks like or this is what a civil war battlefield looks like because photographs exist and when things were filmed that increased the reliability of the historical record. I can see what happened to Kennedy on that street in Dallas that day. This is not just a historian making it up. I can verify it with the film. And all these technologies made things more trustworthy. But that has shifted in the last 5, 10 years in that the most prevalent technologies make things less trustworthy. The most obvious example right now is AI. You ask these AI chatbots things and they... They talk a very convincing game, but only one out of every five things they tell you are correct. Right. You want to know why? Because they're copying people. And that's what people do. It's like the ones who rise to the top are just like the best at explaining their bullshit. No, you're right. It, 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 that's why they, they will not be able to fix this because the model is 
based on training the AI on people that just spread disinformation. So, you, And so I look at a world in which there's no shortage of information, but the, sh- the real shortage is trust. And then I try to apply it to what I do. And it's almost ridiculous to me how some of these news stories just don't get covered. And it's just telling people the honest to God truth. Let me give you an example in my world of music. Somebody the other day found that they kept hearing the same track on Spotify over and over again. Every time they saw it, 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 was, it had a different name. And they found that they eventually this person identified 49 different songs. The song itself was essentially identical, but it always had a different name and attributed to a different artist. And even if you looked at who the composer was, this was different too. And it appeared, now I'm not going to make any allegations, I can't prove this, but what it looked like is AI had devised a song. It was 53 seconds long. It appeared that perhaps Spotify had bought the rights to this and that if they kept putting this into playlists, they wouldn't have to pay royalties to musicians because this is a work for, this apparently, I have to say, it's apparently or could be a work for hire that if they could keep on pushing this same song into different playlists, they wouldn't have to pay musicians money. But if they gave it the same name all the time, it would probably rise to the top of the Billboard chart. <laughs> and everyone, why is this song? Everyone's like, just it looked like to disguise That's their so tracks weird. that they gave it a different name. Now, let me just finish this. That I saw this. I wrote an article about this. But why isn't Rolling Stone covering this? Why isn't the New York Times covering this? Why aren't is an Entertainment Weekly covering this? And there, I could give you so many examples of things happening on these large platforms that seem duplicitous and designed to hurt musicians and creators in our economy. And no one will even tell you a straight story on this. And so when people ask me, how can you be an honest broker? I said, I wish it was hard, but actually it's like a gift to me that I can break these stories because it just, it seems like important things are happening and within the legacy media, no one will even will tell you that. Your, your shirt could be on fire. And they, unless you ask them a direct question, is my shirt on fire? Oh, now that you mentioned it, Ted, yes, your shirt is on fire. It, it shouldn't be like peaceful. that. It should not be like that. If it's like that in my field, music, what's it like in politics or business or these much bigger fields? Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I mean, I, I want to ask more about that story really quick before we go on. I don't understand that because that's just not how I listen to music. I can, so curated just, playlists. So you sign up for a playlist every every week saying these are the songs that you will like because mm. they, they're they trying to create passive listening. The streaming platforms are trying to create right. passive listening. So, so you, you don't choose the- what, 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 in the old days, hey, I'm going to listen to Sex Pistols or whatever, and you would choose whatever you were going to listen to and listen to it. But now it's people subscribe to these playlists or they'll get something from a streaming platform saying, we analyzed what you liked last week. These are the 10 songs you'll like this week. And in those theoretically, they could fill those playlists up with work for hire that they own the 100% the rights of. So they don't have to pay any royalties. And a company like Spotify, which doesn't have the profit margins it would like to have, could boost their margins, but they have to fool people. They have to deceive people to do this. Now, is this happening? Well, it would be great if Rolling Stone or the New York Times I wonder if looked they into even, this. I don't, I mean, because I don't see this stopping. You know, AI is coming and it's going to be composing stuff. I wonder if people wouldn't wouldn't listen to it if it was if they knew it was AI generated. I'm not convinced. I, I don't I don't know the answer to that. People seem 
perfectly fine with AI-generated images. They love them even. I mean, I don't know why music would be different if you actually just told them. And I, what I do know is the experiment's coming. Did you see the Grime stuff at all? Uh, well, she said that uh, she'd get 50% of all income if people but used But the idea her. is kind of interesting. The idea to give your voice. So the, obviously AI, let's say, can generate whatever content it wants or people can use a model of you to generate content that sounds like you, which, you know, knee jerk, if, if someone could take my, you know, quote, voice in writing and use it to write things that I hate, that sounds terrifying. And I think that's probably the knee-jerk reaction that most singers are having. You know, you don't want that, or even actors, because I think there's a easily there's definitely a world in which that that's we're already living in that world, actually. They have fucked up fingers, but other than that, like it looks like the people. So the future is going to be that, unless I mean the next thing is copyright infringement. But Grimes is like, I love this, and I'm gonna it's take it. Take me if you want me, use my voice, create music. Does she not just become one of the biggest stars in the world if suddenly anyone can like record with her voice? She's already a, a known quantity. People know who she is. I think it's pretty exciting. I think it's cool. I think within the next few years, you will have legitimate hit songs composed by AI. And I think it will be centered on certain genres of music. And I'll just say out, out and out, and, and people get angry when I say this, the more formulaic the genre the more predictable the genre, the easier it will be for AI to move into it. The kind of stuff that I came out of, jazz, AI, it's going to take them 20 years to, 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 to do that. But see, but I'm, what I'm really worried about is the economic model underneath this, because I think the story that people aren't being told is that AI is being used to create profit streams for enormous corporations at the expense of musicians composers and creative people. Already there are websites you can go to and say, hey, I need a soundtrack for my film. If I hired a composer to do that, that's going to cost me $10,000. This website will give me an AI theme for $29.95. And I don't know, you love it or hate it, but the the, the real story here to me is, is not the music, because the music to me is just mediocre now. And it'll get better, and maybe it'll someday it'll be as good as 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 human beings. But the real thing that's happening now are people using the AI music, not because it's better, but it's cheaper and they can put a, put a musician out of business. So this is this gets into my concern with the the culture infrastructure. So the idea of jazz as being harder to copy is just I think it's true. And I think it's also true of certain qualities that certain writers bring to work. So if you want to think of someone like Nabokov, that seems much harder to copy than just a reporter, you know, who's doing a dry piece on the, all of it sounds the same. It's supposed to sound the same. So tabling, I don't want to get too much into that because it's almost like patting ourselves on the back, like, yay, we can't be copied. But in the history uh, of sort of intelligence and technology, as things become more easy to do, humans have driven into a different direction. For example, photography exists. And now no one's really interested in paintings from people that seem kind of like reality. They want something else. And that's the birth of like expressionism and stuff that I actually hate, honestly. I hate all that art. Pretty much everything from the 20th century I think is absolutely abysmal, like corrosive of the human spirit. Terrible. Like cannot speak more poorly about it. But... 
in the context of us, this quality that I feel like it seems like a little bit of an edge for now is what we're saying. It's like our unpredictability. People don't quite know what you're going to do or say in jazz. It's the same thing. Do humans, because of this, in the age of artificial intelligence, become more unpredictable and chaotic? How crazy would that be? The thing that is like, it's like a slight edge now becomes the only thing left. And so actually we become, I don't want to say more irrational, but it's going to be, we're going to look a lot more wild, maybe. Our writing will be more wild. Our music will be more wild. You have to be different. There's more of a, of a value on that now. And so naturally everyone does it, right? Well, there's power in unpredictability. I remember studying game theory and negotiating. uh, And what I learned was that the most difficult person to deal with in a negotiation is somebody that was crazy. Mm -hmm. And there's this great story I love of when Henry Kissinger was Secretary of State uh, working for Nixon. And the Soviets put nuclear submarines in Cuba with nuclear bombs. And Kissinger had to convince them to remove these submarines. And that wasn't easy because this was after the Vietnam War. Nobody in America wanted to go to war for over anything. So you really had no real credible threat then. People were burned out on war. Um, So Kissinger met with Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador. And this was his negotiating stance, and it was great. He said, you know, Anatoly, I know you've got these submarines there with nuclear weapons over in Havana. And there's really not much I can do about it. But I got to tell you, Nixon is out of control. <laughs> he is just crazy. I mean, I have never seen, I mean, Nixon usually is crazy, but he's just, oh, he looks like a lunatic today. The next day, the Soviets moved the submarines. <laughs> and and you get a sense of the power of craziness in certain circumstances. And maybe that's going to happen in culture too with, with uh AI, you know, AI becomes predictable, so we become less so. But let me ask you a question directly. We both deal with words. The AI supposedly is, this is what it produces too, the widget it produces at the factory are words. Do you see in what you do over the next five, 10 years, AI changing that? Or does you get empowered by doing something crazy and different? So my science fiction fantasy is that I can train an AI on my writing And then I can use it to cover way more things, provided that people, and this is the tricky part of it that I don't know how to protect ourselves from. What I don't want is to live in a world where everybody else can walk around and just steal my voice. That's like, you know, the little mermaid. It's horrifying. It's Ursula status. I don't want that. I want my own voice and I want to be able to use it to hire, you know, like a thousand robot clones of me so I can put them on every single thing I want to cover because there's a lot and I don't get to it. That would be cool. I don't think that's going to be the future. I think the future is, honestly, AI, we're talking about automating intelligence. I think it's just not predictable. And I think that the future is probably really weird. And I don't think it's going to be utopian or dystopian. I think it's going to be really weird. I think everything's going to look really different. And I think that that's just, it's just, just like the internet has totally changed the way that we do things, AI will change it as well, not just for the better. It gives and takes. We were talking about this a little earlier. Marshall McLuhan talks about this in in terms of technology. So, you know, the television emerges and it's not, you know, added. It's not like print plus this new stuff, you know. It's totally different. People communicating on print communicate in a way that is totally different than the way they communicate on video. You can just look at the difference between Twitter and TikTok 
or poetry and photography, uh, there is an adaptation, speaking of Nabokov, of Lolita. So Lolita, the book, opens with this crazy language. I don't have it verbatim in my mind, but it's like the tickety talk talk talk. He does all this like crazy verbal play. It's like super poetic. The adaptation of Lolita, the film adaptation, opens with, I believe, a man painting a girl's fingernails. I have to remember, I haven't watched it in so long, but I'm pretty sure it's that, right? You're communicating in completely different ways. And that is, everything will change, right? You have to change. To tell a story in a different medium, you have to tell it in a completely different way. And to exist, I think the parallel there is like to exist culturally in the world, you have to exist in a fundamentally different way. The problem is like, I just really do not think there's any predicting AI. It's just weird. I believe that AI will be susceptible to some of the same problems we've seen with these other hot trends. I don't think it's going to go away like the pivot to video or the upworthy clickbait headlines. But I do think we're at a juncture in history in which people would prefer to have one truly trustworthy voice rather than a chat bot that can come out with reams and reams of pages of which some can be trusted and some can't. Uh, And the same thing, I look at these web platforms that are trying to maximize content. And that's a word I hate. I have to say, I I hate the word content. I want to talk about it. Finish your thought, and then let's go back to content. Well, no, 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 go on. What what do you you feel about this word content? I think it's bullshit, too. I'm I'm, I'm not producing content. I'm a writer. And when I'm on a podcast, I'm a podcaster. And if I start, if I get my team into video, we'll be doing film and, and television or whatever else. I... You know when it really clicked for me the other day? I saw a porn star referring to their work on OnlyFans as content. They could refer to themselves as a content creator. And I was like, wait a minute. We are not doing the same thing. <laughs> like, we're we're doing very, very, very different things. And I realized, and I'm, you know, God bless the porn stars. I'm not here to say they should not be allowed to do porn. Go off. Um, get off. I don't know if that's allowed. Uh, nope, cut it. Okay. I think it's like the word content is cover for people who are not really producing much value, but are getting a lot of attention. And it's like, it legitimizes everyone doing dumb shit online. On TikTok, for example, on Twitter, myself included for a while. I mean, if I'm shit posting, that's not value. Value is when I sit down and I write something that, you know, synthesizes a lot of information and I really share my opinion in a way that is maybe evocative and moving. Some of my tweets are that or partly that, but most of them aren't. And the bullshit is what drives all of the social media platforms. Content is cover for them. And it allows all of us to pretend that what we're doing is not ridiculous. That, that what we're doing is, is meaningful rather than actually we're just stuck in an app, you know, consuming things that we don't need and would have been better if we didn't have in any way won't remember. Can you remember the last five memes? Last meme. What was the last meme that you saw? I can't remember it. Can't certainly can't remember five. They it goes in one ear and out the other, but they do get the clicks. They do get that advertising revenue. I like to tell people that if you're involved in in my world, the music world, and you're dealing with a business or a web platform or what an agent or whatever, that if they use the word content, that's a signal they don't know a damn thing they're talking about. Because those businesses are based on creativity, inspiration, vision, artistry, and none of those things are covered by the word content. Uh, And I think, though, this is emblematic of a larger problem we have in the culture right now is that if you're operating a web platform, people want metrics. And the easiest metric is quantity and uh, 
quantity implies that there's some sort of generic interchangeability to what you're putting up on the platform. But that's the push for the content. But we've reached, it's not only the law of diminishing returns that the more content, the less valuable it is. It's actually created these environments where there's so much on these platforms that people are just hopelessly confused. So I know people now that will tell me, and I, for example, I try to get people excited about jazz because this is like my world. I love jazz, and 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 I see these numbers where only one percent of music consumers are jazz fans, and I weep, and and I want to get them excited. And the first thing they say is, "Ted, it's too confusing. There's just too many artists. There are too many records. I never I don't even know where to start." Doesn't it feel pretentious too? It's like I feel like, and it's not your fault at all. But the kind of people I know who say they like jazz are like the worst humans alive. You well, know? you don't and get me like, started. Oh, I don't do not get person. me started. I don't on. care what that person likes. I, I'm moving. I'm going to listen to. I'll give me the pop music. No, no, and the, and the jazz world is full of posers. But I, that's that's. I don't even want to get started on that. But the fact is, this is not just a. Tr- it's true of jazz, but it's true of everything now. Is people are confused because there's too much out there, and it would be better to be the one trustworthy voice than the person that's got a million pieces of content. What I like about Substack is, I mean, obviously Substack has metrics, and I'm sure that, that Hamisher could give us chapter and verse of how many writers, how many articles they publish. But I, I rarely, rarely hear the people on Substack brag in those terms. It's really a look at Margaret Atwood is writing for us, or Salman Rushdie, or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You, you point to the quality. We like to think that we're part of that too. And that's what gives you power in this culture is to have someone who says, well, if Margaret, if Salman Rushdie tells me something about terrorists and uh, the risk they pose to society, well, damn it, this guy lost an eye for yeah. that. Yeah, I'm gonna, I will listen to what he has to say. This is not, and maybe more than an AI chatbot. So I do think what's happening at Substack, one of the reasons why we're succeeding on it and the platform is succeeding is because it's not just saying, more and more content. It's look at these pillars, they're trustworthy or they're provocative or you'll get something from this that you're not going to get from the rest of the culture, which is very much monolithic and monotone right now. And I've often said there's not a counterculture. It's just, and we're in a world in which there's not a whole lot of difference between the various voices out there in the legacy culture. They all seem to be saying the same thing. Yeah, I mean, that's what we were talking about earlier, right? It was, it's like, the great flattening of the last 10 years. Everything, like the saddest thing about Vice going under potentially, I don't think it will, I mean, they'll get bought, it'll be whatever, it'll continue to get worse. But the saddest thing about it is that they are going to go out sounding relatively like everybody else. And they came in sounding so different. Like when The Offspring emerged and you were like, what is, I've never heard something like that before. That was Vice. Vice was cool. And and now it's 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 just not it's just, it's not I don't even want to say it's bad it's just the same and this is I want it there's a, another version so Gawker evil company <laughs> like absolutely like the scariest people alive to a certain extent they're why I started writing more I felt unsafe for myself and my friends while they were writing I thought they were like basically terrorists however they were good fucking writers they were really really good. They were they were sharp and they were and and the scary part of it was I mean they were just they were scary because they were so 
good. They were so funny and quick and they had their finger on the pulse and there was no one writing like the people at Gawker. The saddest thing about Gawker, I mean, they got nuked by my boss. They go under. The saddest thing about them is not they went under. It's when it comes back and it's staffed by a bunch of people who are just they're in they're the same as all these other media voices they're they sound identical to everything else it was so it was the worst possible ending for them it was like they came back like a zombie and the word gawker was associated with sameness to the point that no one even knew they were around when they finally broke down it was like they 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 finally the gawker new gawker went under recently and it's like people forgot they were even ex- around still they they didn't even know it was still <laughs> it was still going it's messed up i don't want to go like that that's not how i'm going to go I crave these alternative voices now, even if I don't agree with them. I mean, there are people I read on Substack all the time. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with a thing they say, but the provocation is valuable. You know, I just coming in the door here, uh, Sophia introduced me to this woman who said, I liked your article on why we don't have a counterculture. Or the, it was called, I think, 14 Signs You're Living in a Society Without a Counterculture. I wrote this. And she said, I remember when I was coming up the punk scene. She said, I was very involved in the punk scene, and that was a real counterculture. Is there anything like that now? And that gave me a flashback. This was when I was 2021. I was I was living overseas in Oxford, and I was really, once again, totally obsessed with my studies, which were philosophy, and I was playing jazz at night with the jazz bands. And I this punk thing was happening in England right then, uh, but I was completely oblivious to it. But one day, someone said, you know, Ted, the punks are coming to Oxford tomorrow. Yeah, the punks are coming to Oxford. Yeah, I see. And the next day, I'm walking down the street, and I get to this big open area, and there's this ridiculous standoff. There are about 50 police officers all in riot gear at one side of the street. And on the other side of the street, they're like, 300 punks with their spiky hairdos and their piercings. And and they're staring at each other. A riot is going to happen. Literally, a riot is going to happen there. And I just turn around and I go, I go back the other way. And I have to say that my, I said to myself, you know, I'm a jazz person. I don't even know this punk stuff. But you got to admire a music genre that can inspire fans to the end. These people have have mutilated their flesh because of this alternative lifestyle. I just, I'm not in favor of of mutilating your flesh or whatever. But still, we do not have those kind of forces in a counterculture now. It's just, it's more of the same. I mean, I disagree. I I don't want to take this conversation into a very political place, but I agree generally. I agree in music. I agree maybe in art, you see things, let's, you know, I'll, I'll take two examples. You have on the one hand, Antifa takes a neighborhood in Seattle. And on the other, you have the Proud Boys. And they, you know, march around the country finding people they can like go and protest and then basically cause little mini riots wherever they go. Both of those groups of people have like, leaders, like thought leaders that they're super obsessed with and their own sort of like weird internet subcultural stuff that is, I mean, it's manifesting in in what I consider, I mean, anytime Antifa and the Proud Boys clash, and they've clashed directly in numerous times, especially in the Pacific Northwest, it, it feels like a LARP, you know? It feels like they're living out some crazy fantasy and that fantasy 
it, it's like stuff they're reading online. That's their culture. And it, and it's not the mainstream. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe it's like some piece of the mainstream culture. They're like the most undistilled version of it. But it, I think there is I think there is some stuff. It just doesn't look the same. It doesn't look like, you know, we have this idea of the counterculture from it's like the 60s and then the punk people. And it's supposed to look weird and, um, you know, rebellious against the the sort of like the straight man. And maybe it just looks kind of different. I don't know. That's a, you make a great point. You make a great point. There are these groups that are clearly outside the mainstream culture, uh, and but it's more like they're angry gangs. And if that's the counterculture, we need something. I mean, I if you ask me what what represents a counterculture, I say, well, you know, there were the beatniks in the 1950s, and you had Kerouac wrote on the road, and Ginsburg did Howl and his poetry. And some of the jazz people were counterculture. Bob Dylan was definitely counterculture when he came out. The punk scene, maybe grunge in in Seattle and, and Nirvana. And a lot of these people did not have happy endings. You know, Kurt Cobain died young. Uh, you know, Sid Vicious. I mean, it was... But now, the examples you give there... Is that the counterculture day? Or are they just, is, is anger sufficient? No, you're right. It's, is it, anger sufficient? You're speaking to the actual culture now, and, and I agree with that. And I think it's, I think that what maybe allowed all of those things to be the counterculture was the gatekeeping. They were really small. And so the people involved in them or who were fans of them, they felt really personal about it. And this is why they get so mad when things become popular or whatnot. Now on the internet, I mean, something goes viral, the whole world sees it. There, There's really no... I don't want to use the word protecting, but there's no protecting quality. There's no way to like keep it walled off and allow it to become something special and small that is different than what everyone else is doing because it's just the the internet amplifies what the internet amplifies. To an extent that could it be possible that what we're doing is a closer thing to a counterculture in terms of us as I think they're subcultures as as, as commentators on society that aren't co-opted by the system. Right. That I mean, that's what I aim to be is a commentator on the system who's not co-opted by the system. And so I can write articles. I'm critical of Netflix. I'm critical of Facebook. I'm critical of, of Twitter and what Elon Musk is doing with Substack profiles this week. Uh, I'm critical of Spotify and all these places. Uh, on the other hand, I try to be optimistic, but still I try to be someone who, who's not co-opted by the system. Could that be a counterculture? Because you're like this too. I think that, yes, I think this, probably what we both have, you see this a little bit on, not even on just Substack, but on like Patreon and things like this. Any place where you can have a special kind of walled off place for your fans. I, I don't know that it's, I don't maybe know the distinction between a subculture and a counterculture, but certainly I know that it's, it feels subcultural. It feels like these, these certain, there are niches and styles that are particular to these little kind of like, mini worlds within the broader the broader thing and th- and that's new i think the last 10 years that was not there everything was flat there were no it was like the emergence under covid i f- i feel like it was like signal chats group chats started happening much more than public conversations and that kind of coincided in an interesting way with the rise of things like substack and uh patreon was already happening but i feel like we were talking about it a lot more uh, around that time people were certainly craving that and and then now, yeah, what's what, what 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 who who works in in these in this new environment? They're not people who sound like everybody else. It's like it takes a lot to want to subscribe to someone, 
let alone pay. Because even if you're just subscribing for free, you're getting what an email from someone. That's I don't want any more emails. I was at first I didn't think it was going to work. I'm like, who wants more? I don't want emails. People are really going to give me their email address. That's crazy. Why are they doing that? That's nuts. Don't do that. But they did it, and that's I think it's yeah. People want they want this subcultural experience, and then maybe it becomes what a counterculture when probably just enough people are into it. Is Joe Rogan a counterculture? Maybe a little bit. Here's how I would define it. You know, I wrote this article, as I said, complaining that there's no counterculture. And some people came back to me and said, well, no, 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 I'm involved in this group of people and we watch gift unwrapping videos on YouTube. And I go, wait a second, time out. (laughs) That's a subculture. It's not a counterculture. And there are all these fragmented groups of people that, you know, do crocheting or whatever. The counterculture, I think, this is how I would define it, is it somebody that's on the fringe today but believes that the fringe that we represent can either go mainstream or transform the mainstream in some meaningful way. And I, that's where I think you and I have a better claim. God, I can't see my – I call myself a member of the counterculture. It seems bogus because I'm, <laughs> I'm old and tired and beat up and my better days are behind me. But still, I think the attitude that we have could be an attitude you could build a counterculture. It would need a better representative than me. But I think the attitude we have in that we're outside the system, we're critical of the system, we want to have an impact in changing the system, but those people, are uh, our voices sometimes are threatening to them. To me, that's the closest thing to a counterculture we have right now. And we need more of it, I think. And that's why I'm glad there there are people out there like what you're doing and and, and these other people on Substack, even if I don't agree with them. I don't feel like I'm rebelling again. I I think that it's definitely different than what's happening. I don't feel like I'm rebelling. I think that I'm just refusing to not be myself. And I'm just, I'm just like existing. I'm like, here are my thoughts. I'm going to share them. You know, here are my takes. People join and they agree or disagree within reason. And I don't know. I, I, maybe it's like an, it's like an, a rebellious act, I guess, or it felt more so a few years ago to just say what you thought. I think that actually the culture is like thawing to a certain extent. And I, this could just be a product if I have a bigger, group of people following me now. And so it's less scary than it used to be. You know, I know I have a lot of supporters who would not turn their back on me if what some stupid writer came after me and from whatever now defunct new media entity. But I do, yeah, my gut sense is that things are a little bit better. And so I don't know, I'm not even focused. I'm just focused on, I want to just tell the best stories and I want to encourage people to do the better thing, I guess. You know, I, I wrote about local politics, to, to a local politics story today. There was this like Mad Max Whole, Food, uh, Whole Foods in downtown San Francisco. I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in the Mad Max Whole Foods world. I want to live in a world where like the grocery stores are not a scary place to go or work. And if that's like a rebellious thing to say, then okay, <laughs> I guess I'm a rebe- I guess I'm a rebel. Call me a rebel. <laughs> I read that article when the the police report is the man with the machete is back. Man with machete is back. Yeah, well, that's a crazy uh, thing. That is you, a crazy you thing. You don't want to be out shopping when the man <laughs> with the machete nuts. is back. But what's really nuts is that the Chronicle defended it, and you're like. That, how do you... This guy with a machete, he's had a hard day. (laughs) They got to eat too. (laughs) A man with a machete needs to eat. Where are they going to go? And I think there's cause to optimism. And like I said, you just 
pitched a very optimistic view. And I do fight a system because, you know, you got to realize in the world I live in, music, they're like, what, four major labels. Those folks make all the decisions. In writing, they're like four publishing companies. Mm. And so it seems every place that I deal with in, in my world, there are a few powerful people that control too much, and they all have the same opinion on everything. Uh, you know, we want songs this month that sound more like TikTok or whatever. And so I do fight against the system, but I do share your fundamental optimism. And you have to have that optimism because if you resign yourself to cynicism, you might as well give up. If if all you're going to do is complain, uh, you might as well. I mean, I try every time I deal with these issues and, and even issues I'm not happy with, I try to say, but here's the good side or here's the positive aspect of it. And I think there are. I think there are, and, and and you've outlined some good reasons. We shouldn't we shouldn't have to deal with the man with the machete, and <laughs> and you should be able to get a consensus on that. Yes, on books, I think we have time maybe for like just one more little piece here. You mentioned the publishers. It's interesting. That's where I started my career in my early twenties. And earlier, you asked me before we started the podcast. You know, what about book? Like, do books matter? To pe- like, is that culture anymore? Or where is it happening? Where is the valuable writing happening or the meaningful writing happening? I don't know. What do you think? What, what do you think? Do, do you think that books, like actual physical, long, not even physical, let's just let's leave physical out of it. Let's say long form, like novel length books. Is that still shaping culture in any way? Not to the extent it did. And I'm somebody that really put my wagers on the table along with the publishing industry for many years. And I guess some of the first 11 books were just that. They were physical books. I worked with major publishers. I also worked with small ones. But over time, it became harder to work with the small ones because the industry became more monolithic. I was what was known as a mid-list writer for a long time, which meant I wasn't going to have a bestseller. On the other hand, I wasn't just going to sell a few hundred copies. I had a meaningful audience, I could come out with a book and sell maybe 20, 30,000 copies. And at a certain point, the publishing industry decided they didn't want people like me. They just wanted bestsellers. And I had at a certain point, I said, I have got to find a way in the future. If I write a book, it's got to have the potential to sell 100, 200,000 copies. And I've got to do that without diluting my standards, because uh, that's the world we live in. And at a certain point, I just, with, when Substack came along, I said, yeah, I don't even want to deal with these publishers anymore. I'll publish on, on Substack. I'll put the next book out there. Uh, I, I think there is a place for the book, but it's not the central place. You, you deliver a manuscript, the book isn't even published for a year. So what kind of impact can you have on, on a culture if you're covering things a year late in this instantaneous culture we have? So I wish the book industry well. I hope they get their act together. I hope they're a platform for vibrant, diverse voices. Uh, but personally, I was happy to walk away from that world. When I was in publishing, there were – so even outside of the world of nonfiction and cultural analysis and writing and things like that, in, just in the world of fiction – so let's say 15 years ago, early, like, let's say 20, 2009 or something, whatever that was, there were popular celebrity literary fiction writers, the Jonathans. It was like Franzen and Saffron Foyer, and there was one other Jonathan. I don't think there's anything like that anymore. I don't know who those people are. And I'm a writer. And I'm like, who are the I don't, someone's like, who are your favorite writers? My go-to is not some literary fiction. I didn't, listen, I never liked the Jonathans either. But they were culturally relevant in a way I've not seen a novelist 
a literary novelist be relevant in a long time? I mean, the most relevant novelist is probably still J.K. Rowling, and that's a different kind of thing, right? Like, it, it doesn't seem like those people, the Jonathans have not been replaced. I don't think they've been, repl- there's not, there are not like new Jonathans. That's crazy to me that, that the, the books, it just does seem, it seems like people are reading less longer form. They're living online more. And even online, I feel that we, it's not like we're this, I think there's a lot of short form video stuff happening. That's where most people are living. They're not living on Twitter or even Substack, certainly not. It's like the people who are literary minded, inclined to words and whatnot, this is their jam, but we're still a, a sliver of the pie. Well, you're right. Because you, I mean, Cormac McCarthy recently came out with two books, and many people will tell you he's the greatest living American novelist. But there was almost no coverage of these books. Yeah, it was like, like they didn't even right. exist. Greatest Ameri- living American life. I've I, heard that. I, I, I know for read a fact. Them. I haven't read them yet. I'm told they're very good books, but it's like they don't even exist. I asked my friends who he is. I know for a fact. If I ask my like three best friends who he is, they're not going to be able to name a book of his. And that's the that's the world we live in now. The question is: Is that the fault of Cormac? Call the culture. The fault of the publisher. Well, I do think the the goal for us has to be to to find a way to amplify quality voices, and it may not be in books in the future. That's that's sad, but it it, it might be more in the mediums that we're using. Yeah, subscribe to Pirate Wires. Any honest broker? Yes, please. You can find Mike Solana at Pirate Wires on Substack, which is piratewires.com. And you can find Ted Joyer's The Honest Broker at tedjoya.substack.com. That's Ted Joyer, G-I-O-I-A.substack.com. See you next time. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com, R-E-A-D.substack.com.